Hi, everyone. I'm Alex. Welcome to Reading Poorly. The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Chapter 13, Poirot Explains. Poirot, you old villain, I said, I have half a mind to strangle you. What do you mean by deceiving me as you have done? We were sitting in the library. Several hectic days lay behind us. In the room below, John and Mary were together once more, while uh, Alfred Inglethorpe and Miss Howard were in custody. Now at last I had Poirot to myself, and could relieve my still-burning curiosity. Poirot did not answer for a moment. Sorry, Poirot did not answer me for a moment. But at last he said, I did not deceive you, mon ami. At most, I permitted you to deceive yourself. Yes, but why? Well, it is difficult to explain. You see, my friend, you have a nature so honest and a countenance so transparent that... Enfin, maybe? <laughs> French? To conceal your feelings is impossible. If I had told you my ideas... The very first time you saw Mr. Alfred Inglethorpe, that astute gentleman would have, in your so expressive idiom, quote, smelt a rat, then bonjour to our chances of catching him. I think that I have more diplomacy than you give me credit for. My friend, besought Poirot, I implore you, do not enrage yourself. Your help has been of the most valuable. It is but the extremely beautiful nature that you have. It is but the extremely beautiful nature that you have which made me pause. Well, I grumbled a little mollified. I still think you might have got or you might have given me a hint. But I did, my friend, several hints. You would not take them. Think now, did I ever say to you that I believed John Cavendish guilty? Did I not, on the contrary, tell you that, that he would almost certainly be acquitted? Yes, but and did I not immediately afterwards speak of the difficulty of bringing the murderer to justice? Was it not plain to you that I was speaking of two entirely different persons? No, I said, it was not plain to me. Then again, continued Poirot, at the beginning, did I not repeat to you several times that I didn't want Mr. Inglethorpe arrested now? That should have conveyed something to you. Do you mean to say you suspected him as long ago as that? Yes. To begin with, whoever else might benefit by Mrs. Inglethorpe's death, her husband would benefit the most. There was no getting away from that. When I went up to Stiles with you that first day, I had no idea as to how the crime had been committed. But from what I knew of Mr. Inglethorpe, I fancied that it would be, ver that it would be very hard to find anything to connect him with it. When I arrived at the chateau, I realized at once that it was Mrs. Inglethorpe who had burnt the will. And there, by the way, you cannot complain, my friend, for I tried my best to force you on the significance of that bedroom fire in midsummer. Yes, yes, I said impatiently. Go on. Well, my friend, as I say, my views as to Mr. Inglethorpe's guilt were very much shaken. There was, in fact, so much evidence against him that I was inclined to believe that he had not done it. When did you change your mind? When I found that more efforts, when I found that the more efforts I made to clear him, the more efforts he made to get himself arrested. Then, when I discovered that Inglethorpe had nothing to do with Mrs. Rakes, and that in fact it was John Cavendish 
who was interested in that quarter. I was quite sure. I had wondered about that. It seemed like Mrs. Rakes was getting around the house pretty well. <laughs> but no, it's just John, I guess. But why? Simply this. If it had been Mrs. Inglethorpe who was carrying on an intrigue... If it had been Inglethorpe... No Mrs. Uh, there's a Mrs. just below. <laughs> if it had been Inglethorpe who was carrying on an intrigue with Mrs. Rakes... There it is. His silence was perfectly comprehensible. But when I discovered that it was known all over the village that it was John who was attracted by the farmer's pretty wife, his silence bore quite a different interpretation. It was nonsense to pretend that he was afraid of the scandal, as no possible scandal could attach to him. This attitude of his gave me fu furiously to think, and I was slowly forced to the conclusion that Alfred Inglethorpe wanted to be arrested. ABN. From that moment, I was equally determined that he should not be arrested. Wait a minute, I don't see why he wished to be arrested. Because, mon ami, it is the law of your country that a man once acquitted can never be tried again for the same offense. Aha, but it was clever, his idea. Assuredly, he is a man of method. See here, he knew that in his position he was bound to be suspected, so he conceived the exceedingly clever idea of preparing a lot of manufactured evidence against himself. He wished to be arrested. He would then produce his irreproachable alibi, and, hey presto, he was safe for life. But I still don't see how he managed to prove his alibi, and yet go to the chemist shop? Poirot stared at me in surprise. Is it possible? My poor friend, you have not yet realized that it was Miss Howard who went to the chemist's shop. Miss Howard? But certainly. Who else? It was most easy for her. She is of a good height. Her voice is deep and manly. Moreover, remember, she and Inglethorpe are cousins, and there is a distinct eh, resemblance between them, especially in their gait and bearing. It was simplicity itself. They are a clever pair. I am still a little fogged as to how exactly the bromide business was done, I remarked. Bon, I will reconstruct for you as far as possible. I am inclined to think that Miss Howard was the mastermind in that affair. You remember her once mentioning that her father was a doctor? Possibly she dispensed his medicines for him. Or she may have taken the idea from one of the many books lying about when Mademoiselle Cynthia was studying for the exam. Anyway, she was familiar with the fact that the addition of a bromide to a mixture containing strychnine would cause the precipitation of the latter. Probably the idea came to her quite suddenly. Mrs. Inglethorpe had a box of bromide powders, which she occasionally took at night. What could be easier than qu quietly to dissolve one or more of those powders in Mrs. Inglethorpe's large-sized bottles of medicine when it came from Coots? The risk is practically nil. The tragedy will not take place until nearly a fortnight later. If anyone was seen, or if anyone has seen either of them touching the medicine, they will have forgotten it by that time. Miss Howard will have engineered her quarrel and departed from the house. The lapse of time and her absence will defeat all suspicion. Yes, it was a clever idea. If they had left it alone, it is possible the crime might never have been brought home to them, but they were not satisfied. They tried to be too clever, and that was their undoing. So one thing that I didn't realize until reading this paragraph, um, that in case any of you were also confused, maybe you followed it better than I did, um, 
I figure I'll explain out loud because that's what this is. <laughs> I keep saying that. Um, so I just realized what the whole chemistry thing was. So there's, um, she has this bottle of strychnine that is diluted that she takes at a certain schedule for some reason. I don't remember why, but the bromide when added to it, it causes it to precipitate, which means it actually separates from the solution. Um, so it's like if you, um, imagine if you had uh, a glass of chocolate milk, okay? Um, and this isn't a perfect example, but if you have a glass of chocolate milk, it's very well mixed. It's sitting there. There's nothing floating at the bottom or nothing stuck to the bottom, which often happens. Um, so you have a perfectly well mixed glass of chocolate milk, or let's say a commercially purchased jug of chocolate milk. Then you add, you know, chemical X to it, some random thing that probably doesn't actually exist, which causes the milk and the chocolate to separate such that the milk stays completely intact and the chocolate all settles to the bottom. Okay. Um, now, clearly, chocolate milk and regular milk look totally different. And if you looked at the jug, you would see that the, the chocolate mix had all precipitated to the bottom of the glass. But in this case, it's medicine, and it's probably all just a bunch of white powder or, you know, nondescript colored powder. So what happened was that chocolate milk mix got stuck on the bottom and just as would happen <laughs> if it were real chocolate milk mix, that last dose, you know, you got milk, 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 and then what is that? That's way too much chocolate. What's going on? So her body said, whoa, that was way too much strychnine. I'm going to die now. Sort of. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> And then the sleeping powder, or, or no, not the sleeping powder, the uh, whatever it was that Mary Cavendish gave her, I don't know if they, if they named it specifically. I can't remember. Um, but whatever uh, sleeping draft it was that she gave Cindy and, Inglef uh, and Mrs. Inglethorpe, that slowed down the strictine enough that... Uh, that the event happened in early morning instead of late at night. So um, now that the chemistry and precipitation, not precipitation <laughs> like rain, but precipitation like separation, um, though I imagine they might have the same root and they do kind of look the same uh, <laughs> as far as, you know, rain falling from the sky and chocolate milk mix falling out of milk. Anyway, let's move on. Poirot puffed at his tiny cigarette, his eyes fixed on the ceiling. They arranged a plan to throw suspicion on John Cavendish by buying strychnine at the village chemist's and signing the register in his handwriting. On Monday, Mrs. Inglethorpe will take the last dose of her medicine. On Monday, therefore, at six o'clock, Alfred Inglethorpe arranges to be seen by a number of people at a spot far removed from the village. Miss Howard has previously made up a cock and bull. Oh, cock and bull. <laughs> it's like has previously made up a cock. Um, 
<laughs> has previously made up a cock and bull story about him and Mrs. Rakes to account for his holding his tongue afterwards. It'd be weird if she made up a rooster, huh? The chicken. At six o'clock, Miss Howard, disguised as Alfred Inglethorpe, enters the chemist's shop with her story about a dog, obtains the strychnine, and writes the name of Alfred Inglethorpe in John's handwriting, which she had previously studied carefully. But, as it will never do if John, too, can prove an alibi, she writes him an anonymous note, still copying his handwriting, which takes him to a remote spot where it is exceedingly unlikely that anyone will see him. So far, all goes well. Miss Howard goes back to Middlingham. Middlingham. <laughs> it's either Middlingham or Middlingham. <laughs> Probably. Um, I don't like Birmingham. 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 Um, and, and stuff. It's one of those probably actually just a difference between American and British pronunciation. Alfred Inglethorpe returns to Styles. There is nothing that can compromise him in any way, since it is Miss Howard who has the strychnine, which, after all, is only wanted as a blind to throw suspicion on John Cavendish. But now a hitch occurs. Mrs. Inglethorpe does not take her medicine that night. The broken bell... Cynthia's absence, arranged by Inglethorpe through his wife. All these are wasted, and then he makes his slip. M Mrs. Inglethorpe is out, and he sits down to write his accomplice, who, he fears, may be in a panic at the non-success of their plan. It is probable that Mrs. Inglethorpe returned earlier than he expected. Caught in the act and somewhat flurried, he hastily shuts and locks his desk. He fears that if the remain if he remains in the room, he may have to open it again, and that Mrs. Inglethorpe might catch sight of the letter before he could snatch it up. So he goes out and walks in the woods, little dreaming that Mrs. Inglethorpe will open his desk and discover the incriminating document. But this, as we know, is what happened. Mrs. Inglethorpe reads it, and becomes aware of the perfidy of her husband and Evelyn Howard. Perfidy. Like the fact that they're scheming together. Um, deceitfulness, untrustworthiness. Yeah. Um, the perfidy of her husband and Evelyn Howard, though unfortunately, the sentence about the bromides conveys no warning to her mind. She knows that she is in danger, but is ignorant of where the danger lies. She decides to say nothing to her husband, but sits down and writes to her solicitor, asking him to come on the morrow, and she also determines. Uh, to destroy immediately the will which she has just made. She keeps the fatal letter. One thing I forgot to say when discussing the chemistry thing is I can't remember what the strychnine was for, but I find it interesting that she would not have felt whatever benefits, or I mean, maybe there's a placebo effect happening um, for how long was it? Like two weeks? She had two weeks worth of the drug, and basically she took it all at once at, there at the end. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can't, like I said, I can't remember what it was for. So, um, there's a decent chance she could have just had a placebo effect the entire time. <laughs> um, or just been feeling, you know, under the weather. She has the vapors, whatever, you know, weird names for just not feeling great they had back in the early 20th century it was to discover that letter then that her husband forced the locks of the dispatch the lock of the dispatch case yes and from the enormous risk he ran we can see now 
or we can see how fully he realized its importance. That letter accepted, there was absolutely nothing to connect him with the crime. There's only one thing I can't make out. Why didn't he destroy it at once when he got hold of it? Because he did not care to take the biggest risk of all, that of keeping it on his own person. I don't understand. Look at it from his point of view. I have discovered that there, that there were only five short minutes in which he could have taken it, the five minutes immediately before our own arrival on the scene, and before that time, or, or for before that time, Annie was brushing the stairs and would have seen anyone who passed going to the right wing. Figure to yourself the scene. He enters the room, unlocking the door by means of one of the other door keys. They were all much alike. He hurries to the dispatch case. It is locked, and the keys are nowhere to be seen. That is a terrible blow to him, for it means that his presence in the room cannot be concealed as he had hoped. But he sees clearly that everything must be risked for the sake of that damning piece of evidence. Quickly, he forces the lock with a penknife and turns over the papers until he finds what he's looking for. But now a fresh dilemma arises. He dare not keep that piece of paper on him. He may be seen leaving the room. He may be searched. If the paper is found on him, it is certain doom. Probably at this minute, too, he hears the sound below of Mr. Wells and John leaving the boudoir. He must act quickly. You know what? Boudoir, I always pronounce with the R at the end, but I wonder if in French it's boudoir. Because a lot of, you know, French words have way more letters than they pronounce. He must act quickly. Where can he hide this terrible slip of paper? The contents of the waste paper basket are kept, and in any case are sure to be examined. There are no means of destroying it, and he dare not keep it. He looks, ra he looks round and sees, what do you think, mon ami? I shook my head. In a moment, he has the letter torn into long, thin strips, and rolling them up into spills, he thrusts them hurriedly amongst the other spills in the vase on the mantelpiece. I uttered an exclamation. Uh, no one would think of looking there, Poirot continued, and he will be able, at his leisure, to come back and destroy this solitary piece of evidence against him. Then, all at the time, it was in the spill vase in Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom, under our very noses, I cried. Poirot nodded. Yes, my friend. That is where I discovered my, quote, last link, and I owe that very fortunate discovery to you. To me? Yes, do you remember telling me that my hand shook as I was straightening the ornaments on the mantelpiece? Yes, but I don't see. No, but I saw. Do you know, my friend, I remembered that earlier in the morning, when we had been there together, I had straightened all the objects on the mantelpiece, and if they were already straightened, there would be no need to straighten them again, unless, in the meantime, someone else had touched them. Dear me, I murdered. Murmured. Murdered. Dear me, I murdered. Dear me, I murmured. So that is the explanation of your extraordinary behavior. You rushed down to Stiles and found it still there? Yes, and it was a race for time. But I still can't understand why Inglethorpe was such a fool as to leave it there when he had plenty of opportunity to destroy it. Ah, but he had no opportunity. I saw to that. You? Yes, do you remember reproving me for taking the household into my confidence on the subject? Yes. Well, my friend... I saw there was just one chance. I was not sure then if Inglethorpe was the criminal or not, but if he was, I reasoned that he would not have the paper on him, but would have hidden it somewhere, and by enlisting the sympathy of the household, I could eventually prevent 
or I could effectually prevent his destroying it. He was already under suspicion, and by making the matter public, I secured the services of about ten amateur detectives who would be watching him unceasingly, and being himself aware of their watchfulness, he would not dare to seek further to destroy the document, and therefore forced to depart from the house, leaving it in this... Er, uh, he was therefore forced to depart from the house, leaving it in the spill vase. But surely Miss Howard had ample opportunities of aiding him. Yes, but Miss Howard did not know of the paper's existence. In accordance with their prearranged plan, she never spoke to Alfred Inglethorpe. They were supposed to be deadly enemies, and until John Cavendish was safely convicted, they neither of them dared risk a meeting. Of course, I had a watch kept on Mr. Inglethorpe, hoping that sooner or later he would lead me to the hiding place, but he was too clever to take any chances. The paper was safe where it was. Since no one had thought of looking there in the first week, it was not likely they would do so afterwards. But for your lucky remark, we might never, sorry, but for your lucky remark, we might never have been able to bring him to justice. I understand that now, but when did you first begin to suspect Miss Howard? When I discovered that she had told a lie at the inquest about the letter she had received from Mrs. Inglethorpe. Why, what was, what was there to lie about? You saw the letter? Do you recall its general appearance? Yes, more or less. You will recollect, then, that Mrs. Inglethorpe wrote in a very distinctive hand and left large, clear spaces between her words. But if you look at the date at the top of the letter, you will notice that, quote, July 17th is quite different in this respect. Do you see what I mean? No, I confessed. I don't. You do not see that the letter was not written on the 17th, but on the 7th, the day after Miss Howard's departure, the 1 was written in before the 7 to turn it into the 17th. But why? Sorry, I had to breathe. <laughs> but why? That is exactly what I asked myself. Why does Miss Howard suppress the letter written on the 17th and produce this faked one instead? Because she did not wish to show the letter of the 17th. Why, again? And at once a suspicion dawned in my mind. You will remember my saying that it was wise to, be, to beware of people who were not telling you the truth. And yet I cried indignantly. After that, you gave me two reasons why Miss Howard could not have committed the crime. And very good reasons, too, replied Poirot. For a long time, they were a stumbling block to me until I remembered a very significant fact, that she and Alfred Inglethorpe were cousins. She could not have committed the crime single-handed, but the reasons against that did not debar her from being an accomplice. And then there was th that rather over-vehement hatred of hers. It concealed a very opposite emotion. There was, undoubtedly, a tie of passion between them long before he came to Stiles. They had already arranged their infamous plot that she should marry this that he should marry this rich but rather foolish old lady, induce her into induce her to make a will, leaving her money to him, and then gain their ends by a very cleverly conceived crime. If all had gone as they planned, they probably would have they would probably have left England and lived together on the poor victim's money, on their poor victim's money. They are a very astute and unscrupulous pair. While suspicion was to be directed against him, she would, 
she would be making quiet preparations for a very different den- denouement French. A, a very different circumstance, very different situation, is my guess. She arrives from Middlingham with all the compromising items in her possession. No suspicion attaches to her. No notice is paid to her coming and going in the house. She hides the strychnine and, and glasses in John's room. She puts the beard in the attic. She will see to it that sooner or later they are true, they are duly discovered. I don't quite see why they tried to fix the blame on John, I remarked. It would have been much easier for them to br- bring the crime home to Lawrence. Yes, but that was mere chance. All the evidence against him arose out of pure accident. It must, in fact, have been distinctly annoying to the pair of schemers. His manner was unfortunate, I observed thoughtfully. Yes, you realize, of course, what was at the back of that? No. You did not understand that he believed Mademoiselle Cynthia guilty of this crime? No, I exclaimed, astonished. Impossible. Not at all. I myself nearly had the same idea. But it was in my mind, or it was in my mind, no but, when I asked Mr. Wells that first question about the will. Then there were the bromide powders, which she had made up, and her clever male uh, impersonations, as Dorcas recounted them to us. There was really more evidence against her than anyone else. You are joking, Poirot. No. Shall I tell you what made Monsieur Lawrence turn so pale when he first entered his mother's room on the fa- fatal night? It was because, whilst his mother lay there, obviously poisoned, he saw, over your shoulder, that the door to Mademoiselle Cynthia's room was unbolted. But he declared that he saw it bolted, I cried. Exactly, said Poirot dryly. And that was just what confirmed my suspicion that it was not. He was shielding Mademoiselle Cynthia. But why should he have, but why should he shield her? Because he is in love with her. I laughed. There, Poirot, you are quite wrong. I happen to know for a fact that far from being in love with her, he positively dislikes her. Who told you that, mon ami? Cynthia herself. French. Uh, la pauvre petite? Pauvre petite? Well, it's la petite <laughs> on either end, and pauvre, maybe? And she was concerned? She said she did not mind at all. Then she sure, certainly did mind very much, remarked Poirot. They are like that, the femmes. Uh, the whole, if he acts like he doesn't like you, he likes you. And if she acts like she doesn't care, she does. Uh, bugs me. What you say about Lawrence is a great surprise to me, I said. But why? It was most obvious. Did not Monsieur Lawrence make the sour face every time Mademoiselle spoke, or Cynthia spoke and laughed with his brother? He had taken it into his long head that Mademoiselle Cynthia was in love with Monsieur John. When he entered his mother's room and saw her obviously poisoned, he jumped to the conclusion that Mademoiselle Cynthia knew something about the matter. He was nearly driven desperate. First, he crushed the coffee cup to powder under his feet, remembering that she had gone up with his mother the night before, and he determined that there should be no chance of testing its contents. Thenceforward, he strenuously and quite uselessly upheld the theory of death from natural causes. And what about the, quote, extra coffee cup? I was fairly certain that it was Mrs. Cavendish who had hidden it, 
but I had to make sure. Monsieur Lawrence did not know at all what I meant, but on reflection, he came to the conclusion that if he could find an extra coffee cup anywhere, his lady love would be cleared of suspicion. And he was perfectly right. One thing more, what did Mrs. Inglethorpe mean by her dying words? They were, of course, an accusation against her husband. Dear me, Poirot, I said with a sigh, I think you have explained everything. I'm glad it has all ended so happily. Even John and his wife are reconciled. Thanks to me. How do you mean, thanks to you? My dear friend, do you not realize that it was simply and solely the trial which has brought them together again? That John Cavendish still loved his wife, I was convinced. Also, that she was equally in love with him, but they had drifted very far apart. It all arose from a misunderstanding. She married him without love. He knew it. She, er, he is a sensitive man in his way. He would not force himself upon her if she did not want him. And as he withdrew, her love awoke. But, but they are both unusually proud, and their pride held them inexorably apart. He drifted into an entanglement with Mrs. Rakes, and then she deliberately, deliberately cultivated the friendship of Dr. Bowerstein. Do you remember the day of John Cavendish's arrest, when you found me deliberating over a big decision? Yes, I quite understood your distress. Pardon me, mon ami, but you did not understand it in the least. I was trying to decide whether or not I would clear John Cavendish at once. I could have cleared him, though it might have meant a failure to convict the real criminals. They were entirely in the dark as to my real attitude up to the very last moment, which partly accounts for my success. Do you mean that you could have saved John Cavendish from being brought to trial? Yes, my friend, but I eventually decided in favor of, quote, a woman's happiness. Nothing but the great danger through which they have passed could have brought these two proud souls together again. I looked at Poirot in silent amazement, the colossal cheek of the little man. Who on earth but Poirot could have thought of a trial for murder as a restorer of conjugal happiness? I perceive your thoughts, mon ami, said Poirot, smiling at me. No one but Hercule Poirot, Poirot would have attempted such a thing, and you are wrong in condemning it. The happiness of one man and one woman is the greatest thing in all the world. His words took me back to earlier events. I remembered Mary as she lay white and exhausted on the sofa, listening, listening. There had come the sound of the bell below. She had started up. Poirot had opened the door, and meeting her agonized eyes, had nodded gently. Yes, madame, he said, I have brought him back to you. He had stood aside, and as I went out, I had seen the look in Mary's eyes as John Cavendish had caught his wife in his arms. Perhaps you are right, Poirot, I said gently. Yes, it is the greatest thing in the world. Suddenly, there was a tap at the door, and Cynthia peeped in. I, I only... Come in, I said, springing up. She came in, but did not sit down. I only wanted to tell you something. Yes? Cynthia fidgeted with a little tassel for some moments, then suddenly exclaiming, You dears, kissed first me, then Poirot, and rushed out of the room again. What on earth does this mean? I asked, surprised. It was very nice to be kissed by Cynthia, but the publicity of the salute rather impaired the pleasure. It means that she has discovered Monsieur Lawrence does not dislike her as much as she thought, replied Poirot philosophically, but here he is. Lawrence at that moment passed the door. 
Eh, Monsieur Lawrence, called Poirot. We must congratulate you, is it not so? Lawrence blushed and then smiled awkwardly. A man in love is a sorry spectacle. Now Cynthia had looked charming. Now Cynthia had looked charming. I'm not quite sure how to read that sentence. I sighed. What is it, mon ami? Uh, nothing, I said sadly. They are two delightful women. And neither of them is for you, finished Poirot. Never mind. Console yourself, my friend. We may hunt together again. Who knows? And then... The end. It literally ends in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> or, I mean, he might have actually stopped. Instead of... As opposed to being in the middle of the sentence, he may have actually let it hang like that. But yes, the end. This is the end of The Mysterious Affair at Styles. The first book of my podcast, Reading Poorly. Ah, I guess we'll find out what happens next. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm not quite sure how to end this, so I'm just going to stop.